Good morning again. Uh, Good to be with you to continue our Comparison Trap series. Uh, We're in week three, and uh, we could summarize all of these weeks under the the same uh, kind of theme, which is that there's no win in comparison. Can everybody say that? There's no that was pretty good. Uh, you didn't sound convinced, though, and I preached. I could keep, I could preach this all year if it's going to take that long to convince you. Uh, let's try it one more time. There's win in comparison. Okay, good job, good job. So if you understand that, uh, you kind of get the point of of this series. But the comparison has a whole bunch of different effects on our lives, uh, individually, but also corporately. Uh, and so we've looked at how that comparison affects us. Uh, kind of individually the last couple of weeks, and now we're going to kind of expand that and, and move out from that, and in the upcoming weeks, uh, look at some of the core reasons of uh, why we do that, and also what we can do about that. Uh, but comparison starts really young. I shared in the first week, uh, you know, when I was growing up in elementary school, uh, how quickly I became aware of what other kids were doing, what other kids were wearing, uh, what other families were doing. Uh, And as a parent, I can see uh, how comparison affects even my own kids. When they were really little, uh, it started showing up in all sorts of different ways. And I remember one letter uh, that one of my son, my youngest son named Silas, uh, left for me. And, uh, and this is what it said. So we, we had a, we had a practice, um, sorry, I hope there's no little kids in the room. Uh, we had a tooth fairy practice, uh, how can I skirt around this carefully, uh, in our house and, uh, there was inequity, uh, between our house and some other houses, apparently. Uh, and so my, my youngest son left us this letter one time after he left the, uh, his tooth underneath the pillow. And then, um, oh, sorry, before he left his tooth underneath the pillow, he left, he left this letter. It's, you can't read it. I'll read it for you. It says, uh, Dear Tooth Fairy, thank you for collecting teeth and making children happy. You see how, like, he's so tactful, even at a young age, of like, I'm going to start with, like, a compliment before I get my ask. He knows what he's doing. Thank you for collecting teeth and making children happy. I have a few questions, please. What do you do with all your teeth? Second question, some people in my class and my friends say, you give them $10 or more. Can I have $10 or more? I mean, I read this and I was like, $10 or more? Like, we got to come together as parents and like have some kind of common understanding here. Um, I thought we were doing pretty good, leaving a loony underneath the pillow there. Uh, Can I have $10 or more? Please write back on the other side of the page. Thank you. Please take the tooth, but not the card. Make sure to write back. So, you know, he, it didn't take him very long to go to school, and, you know, they're comparing notes with classmates, and, uh, you know, I lost my tooth, I'm excited to get my loony, and the kids are like, what, loony? I mean, I get 10 bucks? Um, and then so, yeah, you know, he was content with the loony, and now he's not content with the loony because somebody else ruined it. You ruined it. Uh, you gave your kids too much. Um, but we become uh, aware very early on that others get things that we don't, or others' families do things that we don't do. Um, you know, they do vacations there, and we do vacations here. They live in this community. We live in this community. We, we learn, even as kids, uh, very early on, the differences between uh, families. And when we start comparing ourselves to others, it becomes very difficult uh, not just to be content with what we have, which we've talked about, but it also becomes difficult to celebrate what other people have. I mean, my guess is Silas didn't hear that his friends got $10 and be like, man, that's fantastic. I'm so happy for you. You got 10 bucks. No, his thought process went to, why did you get 10 bucks and I only get a buck? 
does the tooth fairy have a beef with me? Um, you know, that's where his mind went. What's wrong with me? And when we compare, we actually have a very difficult time celebrating the good things that are happening in other people's lives. And I'll tell you who probably had the most hard, the hardest time celebrating out of anybody in history, uh, I would guess particularly for his sibling, uh, was James. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, the Bible character or the Bible, uh, yeah, character James, who became apostle leader in the early church, uh, and he was Jesus' little brother. Can you imagine growing up in a house with Jesus? Okay, we, we, we talk about, you know, people being perfect. Jesus was actually perfect. So you had the perfect brother. Uh, and everything you did in your life was in the shadow of Jesus. You know, can you imagine uh, what that would look like? You know, James, can you go to the market and get some, uh, get some food uh, for groceries tonight? Uh, and you come around the table, and it's like, James, you didn't get enough food. Well, that's okay. You know, Jesus, he knows what to do about this. Jesus, would you just mind multiplying a few of those loaves? Because James didn't quite bring enough. Oh, no problem, Mom. I got this. Oh, that's great, James. You know, you, you learn how to swim. I'm really, really, really happy for you. Did you see what Jesus did the other day? He was walking on water. I mean, swimming, that's, that's pretty good. You know, can you imagine being James? James, do you mind going to get some, uh, pick up some water at the store? Uh, actually, never mind. Get Jesus to get the water because last time he got water, he made it into wine. Jesus, we're having fish tonight. Can you make it white wine? Could you please get some white wine for us? You know, everything in your life was, was being compared to your older brother. Can you imagine me, James? So he, he probably knew comparison more than anybody else. And if you are someone who is uh, maybe struggling with, uh, you know, do I believe in this Christianity thing? Do I believe the Bible's true? Uh, do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? James is actually one of the greatest testimonies we have around the authenticity of who Christ was as the Son of God and the authenticity of our scriptures. Because James, think about it. What would it take for you to believe that your older sibling was the Son of God? I mean, you wouldn't. James believed that his older brother was the son of God and worshipped Jesus, became an apostle, a leader in the church, and Jesus was his older brother. That's, that's phenomenal. So there, there was something that actually changed in James's heart eventually uh, that he understood and came to understand who Jesus was to the point that he actually gave his life uh, for Jesus. Um, but James obviously understood something about comparison growing up in that shadow. Uh, And this is what he says in in his book, James, in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Wherever you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and evil practice. When we find ourselves in the comparison trap, when we find ourselves in that place of envy, which is just Simply, other people have something that you want, and it creates this desire, this desire to have what they want, to be who they are. This is envy. Whenever you find yourselves in that comparison trap, there, in that place, in that relationship, with that person, with that friend, with that sibling, with, with those people, wherever that envy, that comparison trap is happening... There, in that place, you find disorder. And James even sees comparison. Now, this is, this is mind-blowing. He doesn't see comparison as just a place of disorder, but he even goes beyond that and says every kind of evil practice. 
He sees something ugly at the root of comparison that creates an environment of every kind of evil practice. Comparison creates a disorder. It creates chaos. In every relationship where there's envy, in every relationship that you have a comparison trap, there will be chaos and, and disorder in some level in that relationship. God is the one who actually comes to create order out of chaos. This is, this is the beginning of the story we have in Genesis where God shows up and he, he creates order out of chaos. And then if you look at the story of Adam and Eve where they kind of enter into the story, into the way that God designed things to be, to live in right relationship with God, themselves, with others, they make a decision that actually results in chaos and disorder. They make a decision to sin, to to go against God's plan, and it results in chaos and disorder. And what was the heart of their sin? What was the core of what happened there? Well, was it not the sin of comparison? Satan shows up in the scene and says, if you eat this fruit that God told you not to eat, you will be like God. Satan actually plants the thought of comparison and therefore discontentment in the very beginning and creates the environment in which chaos and disorder would actually move from. Comparison trap. James saw this as the heart of every kind of disorder and evil practice. Now, we might be familiar with the phrase, the Joneses. You've, you've probably heard this phrase. Um, and the Joneses is, uh, or keeping up with the Joneses, that's the phrase. Uh, Keeping up with the Joneses is a phrase that actually came from a comic strip. I didn't know that's where it came from, but there used to be a comic strip in your Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, if you're under uh, 30, you have no idea what I'm talking about. We used to get Saturday morning cartoons in the newspaper. Uh, and, uh, and there was a comic strip in there called Keeping Up with the Joneses, and that's where the phrase uh, came from. But Keeping Up with the Joneses is a phrase uh, that refers to you know, those people that we are trying to keep up with in terms of our lifestyle, uh, you know, our quality of living, all of that stuff. It's the people, uh, quote unquote, that we are comparing ourselves to trying to keep pace with. Trying to keep pace with, trying to emulate, trying to simulate. So that's where the name the Joneses come from. And this is what I've entitled the sermon this morning is the Joneses. And we could actually look at James 3.16 and reread this text in this way. For whenever you try to keep up with the Joneses, There you will find disorder in every evil practice. Whenever we try and keep up with the Joneses, whoever that is in our lives, there we will find disorder in every evil practice. Now, I have a bookcase here behind me, and you'll notice um, it's got different things sitting on the the shelves here. And this bookcase represents your life. It represents my life, your life, uh, different areas of our lives. And these are the things that make you unique. Your bookshelf is unique to you. You know, you have a certain level of education uh, that, that makes you you, that helps you understand how you see the world, uh, that's prepared you uh, for where you are in life. Uh, every, every one of us has a limited amount of time. Some of us have more time than others. Some of us don't know how much time we have left. Uh, but we all have time that we are stewarding in certain ways uh, to live the life that we have. Uh, you have certain time that you're at work. You have certain time that you're at home. But we all have uh, different levels of time allotted to different things that make us who we are. We have your story, your own story, your unique story that is continually to be written. Uh, there, your story is full of choices that you have made. 
It's also been full of choices that other people have made that have impacted who you are. And those things make you unique. They make you you. You have a unique family. And some of you are saying, you can say that again. Uh, you know, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And that's the, that's the case with all of us. And, and some of us, you know, we wish that we could trade our, trade our family, but your family is your family. And that family has made you, you. It's helped shape who you are. Uh, we have certain uh, levels of wealth, uh, cert- certain levels of wealth, bank account levels that allow us different opportunities that, that make us us. Uh, you know, I got an iPad here representing, you know, we have different social network of friends. You know, you got certain people that call you friends, certain people that are unique to you. There's nobody else in the world that has the same network as, of friends as you do. Um, this is supposed to be a briefcase. Uh, it's my briefcase. It's, it's, it's seen better days. But, you know, we all, have, uh, we all have work in our lives or some level of work, things that we do, whether it's uh, for payment or sense of satisfaction or that, that we do that actually gives us a sense of worth. Uh, things that we work at each day. We all have different levels of health. You know, I couldn't bring my weights from home. They were too big. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I knew Colton had some little puny weights. And so I said, hey, do you mind bringing the weights that you work out with? So uh, those are Colton's weights. Um, we, we have certain levels of health that, that, are, that are unique to us. Some of us are uh, incredibly healthy. Some of us aren't as healthy as we wish we were. Some of us are maybe days or weeks away from finding out that we're not as healthy as we think we are. Every one of us has different things in that shelf that are unique to us. And together, that bookcase uh, actually is a unique bookcase. Nobody's bookcase is exactly like yours. And there's more cubbies that we could create in that bookcase that make, that make you you. But here's the thing. Here's what we do. As we look at an area in our lives, maybe a, we'll take education, and we say, you know, I wish I had that person's education. I was, I was as smart as that person. I wish I would have gone to that school. And then we look at somebody else, and we think, man, I wish I had their family. I wish my family was more like this. Did you see the way they get along, the way they talk to each other? I wish my family was like that. And then we look at somebody else's bank account and we think, man, if I, if I just had a little bit more money, a little bit more savings, a little bit, uh, if I would have invested better, uh, you know, then things would be that much better. We look at someone else's, uh, you know, levels of health. And what we do, and here's my guess, is you never compare one of those areas with the same person, do you? We pick and we choose who we compare which area of our lives to. So we compare our family with that family. We compare our bank account with that person's bank account. We, you know, compare this with that person. Uh, And pretty soon, we actually are comparing ourselves to a person that doesn't even exist. The person that you compare yourself to and that I compare myself to doesn't even exist. No one's bookshelf looks exactly like yours, but no one's bookshelf is actually as good as you think it is. And so when we we talk about the Joneses, the Joneses don't even exist. It's, it's It's this phrase that we've come up with 
to actually encapsulate this idea that there are people, that there's a person uh, that's kind of like the combination of the best things of everybody else that we've put into one bookshelf, and now we compare every copy of our bookshelf to that make-believe person, the Joneses. Now, I want you to stick with me this morning. I'm going to look at a passage that... um, is probably one of the most avoided passages in the New Testament. Uh, if you were to ask preachers, which passage do you never want to preach on in the New Testament? Uh, this would probably be in their, their top three, for sure. Um, and so it's the passage that we find in Acts chapter 5. Uh, it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And you'll see in a second why people avoid this passage. They don't like talking about it. Uh, it's, a, it's a very jarring passage. It says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? So remember, this is Peter that we talked about last week. Um, Ananias, how is is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, we read that passage, and it's very jarring. It's very severe. And it's supposed to be. In in fact, often when when people think about this passage... Um, you know, the way that it reads is that Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they show up and they sold their property, uh, but they didn't give everything they had to the church. And because of that, God struck them dead. It's actually not a full understanding of the story. Uh, every text in the Bible has a context. Every text in the Bible is part of a larger story. Uh, And you might be thinking, what on earth does this story have to do with comparison? This felt like a right-hand turn. Well, would you you believe me if I said that I think the main point of this story is that Ananias and Sapphira were trying to keep up with the Joneses. If you go back into Acts chapter 4, so we got Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. And remember, in the, the scriptures, we didn't have, in the original scriptures, we didn't have all the chapters and verses numbers, so it was just one long story. These stories were actually intended to read, be read together. And so when we read Acts chapter 5, uh, or chapter 5, we start at verse 1 usually. Uh, but it was actually intended to be read as a whole story. And so if we read the whole story, and we go back into Acts chapter 4, this is what's happening. It says, all the believers were one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, 
but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. All that there were, sorry, all, <laughs> let me read that again. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, this is a beautiful picture in Acts 4 of the church, the early church, what was happening. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came down into his church, and it transformed the hearts of the people. It transformed the hearts of the people so much so that they started to live in radically generous ways. And you'll notice the, the bolded line there, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. Uh, and, I, and I want to focus on that phrase just for a minute, because throughout the story of God's people, God always had a dream. God always had ideals that his people never really stepped into. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's this idea of jubilee. And the idea of jubilee was that every 50 years, everything would be reset. You know, there's an understanding that over time, people accumulated wealth, People had more, some people had more, some people had less. Uh, There was the practice of slavery going on at the time. Uh, You know, people would gain property, some people would lose property over the course of 50 years. And, And every 50 years, all of that was supposed to be reset. Debts would be replayed, slaves would be set free, people would go back to ground zero where they started 50 years ago. Uh, and everybody would be on equal standing. That was the dream of Jubilee. Except if you read scholars, uh, it is pretty clear that at no point uh, in Israel's history, even though this is what God commanded them to do, did they ever practice the year of Jubilee. At no point in their history. God had commanded, God had called it to them. God, and you remember last, last week we talked about the law. God had the standard that the, he said, I want you to live in this way. I want you to practice this radical generosity and graciousness with one another. And we're going to reset the tables every 50 years. At no point in Israel's history did they ever practice what God had for them. Now we show up on the scene in Acts 4. And it says God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that something powerful happened that what the law was unable to accomplish throughout the Old Testament, God's spirit accomplished in the New Testament church. That this radical generosity showed up, that everybody was willfully looking at the needs of the community around them and saying, how can I be a part of the solution? How can I be part of this dream of God that his spirit has put in my heart? It was voluntary. It wasn't this outside thing, this outside law that they were trying to accomplish. It was this inside-out type of living that actually had this powerful effect on everybody around them. To the point that there was no needy person among them. Now, from time to time. So this is important because not everyone was selling everything and bringing it to the church. There was examples of stories of radical generosity where people would sell everything they had and they'd bring it to the church community and they would discern together how to use these funds for the benefit of God's kingdom in the world around them. That was happening. It was not something the apostles were 
um, the early church leaders were enforcing. It was not a law that everybody was doing, uh, but there was this voluntary, radical, spontaneous act of generosity through the Holy Spirit that was making an indent in the world around them. So that's the context of Acts chapter 4. And then there's a little line right at the end of Acts chapter 4 that says this, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostle's feet. Now, this is a character that you're going to see from, if you read Acts, he'll show up lots and lots through the rest of the book of the Acts, but he's introduced here. Um, Joseph is recorded because he did this radical act of generosity, of self-sacrifice. In fact, um, let's call him Joe for short, last name Jones. Joe Jones. So if you want to know who the Joneses are in the story, here he is. Joseph Jones shows up on the scene, does this radical act of, of, of generosity, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet, and said, here's everything from the field. I felt like the Lord was telling me to sell everything, and, and I want it to be used for the benefit of those who have need. And you can imagine, you know, people in the community are like, whoa, did you guys hear what Joseph Jones did? He sold everything, gave to the church, and it, it did this amazing work. So some people were able to celebrate it. Some people looked at that and that was amazing. Some people who I would probably argue were not transformed in the core of their heart felt like, man, if I could be a little bit more like Joseph Jones, you know, maybe the rest of the community would think, they would start talking about us. They'd think, oh man, did you hear what Matt did? How great that was? You know, if if Joseph got all the praise, then maybe I would get the praise too. And so this is the context of Acts chapter 5. So we go into Acts chapter 5 and it says, now, a man named Ananias. And that now word is important because now links us back to this verse. So it talks about Joseph. Joseph did this. Now, there's this other guy, not Joseph Jones, but Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also, again, linking it to the previous story, also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Peter's saying, this was your choice. Nobody forced you to sell your land. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal. So even after you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do with what you wanted? This isn't a top-down thing. It was your decision your voluntary decision. So if it's voluntary, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Ananias and Sapphira were free to do with their property and their money what they wanted. Nobody was forcing them to do anything they didn't want to do. But Ananias and Sapphira were so caught up with keeping up with the Joneses that they thought that they would present themselves in a similar way. You know, the moral of the story 
in Acts chapter 5 is that pretending to be somebody else is going to kill you. Pretending to be somebody else is going to kill you. And we can talk about that metaphorically, but it literally happened in this story. And I think there's a reason why it literally happened in the story. Uh, Because the early church was founded on the gospel of Jesus, which we've talked about the last couple weeks. That there's nothing that we have done, there's nothing that we can do to earn being in right relationship with God, to earn salvation. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we could uh, there's no bad, there's nothing bad enough that we could do to make us disqualified for it because it all happens based on grace. The early church was founded on grace. The church throughout history is founded on grace, not on merit. And so in Acts chapter 5, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira trying to keep up with the Joneses, trying to pretend to be somebody that they weren't, and they get killed for it. I think that the testimony of authenticity and grace was so important to what the church was all about that God was completely intolerant of, of the foundation of his church being built on anything less. In fact, I would go a step further and say that the point of Acts chapter 5 is not just that if you pretend to be somebody, it's going to kill you. I would say pretending to be someone else is going to kill the message that the church was entrusted with to give the world. Pretending to be someone else is going to kill the message that the church was entrusted with to give the world. Which is, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your story is, it doesn't matter what your bookshelf looks like, it doesn't matter, you know, which cubbies you wish you could trade out for somebody else, none of that stuff matters. What matters is Jesus and what he's done, and that is the foundation of our value, our worth, and our life. Yet, if you were to go to family, you go to friends, coworkers, neighbors, people that don't profess to be Christians, people that don't maybe go to church, and you were to ask them, tell me in one word your impression of Christians, of church, what word would they give you? I mean, I don't, I don't know your friends or coworkers, but my guess is you would probably hear a couple of themes over and over again. One is maybe judgmental. Maybe hypocritical. Hypocrisy is pretending to be somebody that you're not. And I believe that the fruit of comparison, one of the fruits of comparison is hypocrisy. When James talks about it being the comparison being the fruit of every kind of evil and disorder, I think one of those fruits is hypocrisy. Now, last week we talked about our value, that our value is based on what somebody is willing to pay. And we sang about that earlier in the service. We know our value based on the price that God was willing to pay, that he sent himself, he sent his son, Jesus, to suffer, to die, to redeem, that we talked about last week, to purchase, that's speaking to our value to buy us back, to adopt us as children of God. We were redeemed, we were purchased with the life of Christ, not because we were perfect, but because he loves us so much that he was willing to go to that extent 
to buy us, to have us. That is the foundation of the church. We are saved by grace. So how is it that a community of people where our major theme, our major message is that God loves us so much that he sent his only son to die so that we could have everlasting life and that we are part of God's family because of what he has done. How, how could it be that uh, a group of people that that is the core message have a reputation for being judgmental and hypocritical? Like, how does that happen? I, I, I think God cares a lot about this to the, to the point that, you know, he took out Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 because this was a big deal. Pretending to be somebody that you're not is a big deal because it undermines the entire message of the gospel. So this is how I think we got there. We are called to be like Jesus. Yes? Let's try again. We're called to be like Jesus. It's a rhetorical question. Yes. Um, Yes. We're called to be like Jesus. We're called to be disciples of Jesus, which means to follow him, to emulate him, to try and be like him. Yet we are brought into the family of God solely by grace, not because of what we're like. Make sense? So we have these two realities that happen in every faith community. We have grace. This is the context, the foundation of our message. And we have holiness, which is our aspiration to be the people that God's called us to be, to be like Christ. We have grace and we have holiness. And I've heard even people talk about, you know, different church experiences in this way. Well, you know, they're, they're, they're really heavy on grace, but they're, they're, not, they're a little light on holiness and truth. And I've heard the opposite. You know, they're really, really all about holiness, but it feels like a very judgmental place, and, and, and they're pretty light on grace. The gospel message, the foundation is grace, but we're called to holiness. We've been saved by grace. The church is founded on grace, and we're called to holiness. I think sometimes we get that, that, that backwards, and we think that we're saved by our own holiness, and we're called to be gracious. No, we're saved by grace. This is where it starts, and then we're called to live a certain way to be like Christ. But living that way, as we see in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, is not something that we do by trying harder. It's something that happens as we... Uh, have an intimate relationship with God filled with the Holy Spirit and he transforms us from the inside out so that we start living in such a radical, voluntary way, not because we're forced to, but because we want to, because God is replacing our desires with his. And so we become to be transformed. You know, theologians call that being sanctified, becoming like Christ. And so if the church is founded on grace yet we're trying to be like Christ, all of us, all of us have room to grow. Yes? Okay. None of us got here because of what we did. And unless I'm missing something, I haven't met anyone that's exactly like Jesus yet. Even though that's what we're trying to emulate. And so I believe that the mark of a follower of Jesus... The primary marker of a community that is founded on grace, that is learning to live like Jesus, is the characteristic of humility. I would love, 
I would love to be known by my friends, by my family, by my neighbors, by my coworkers here on staff, as somebody of humility. I would love for SunWest Church to be known as a group of people who have humility. Because I think we live in the space between with a posture of humility. And I'm so adamant about this that, you know, I do, you know, there's usually a couple sermons a year that I do in order to, uh, to preach people away. Uh, this is one of those things. Uh, this is one of those sermons. Um, that at SunWest, there's a certain type of person we don't want here. If I can just say it that plainly. No perfect people allowed. If you're perfect, or if you even think you're just a little bit more perfect than the person next to you, this isn't, this isn't the church for you. First of all, you're going to be really disappointed in me when you find out how unperfect I am, and we're going to start to be disappointed in each other. And also, because when we live in a community that we think is not founded on grace, but founded on holiness, we begin to pretend to be somebody that we're not. The community of Jesus should be the place where it's most safest to be vulnerable, most safest to be broken, most safest to repent, to confess, to put up your hand and say, you know, I've fallen short. It should be the safest place in the world for you to come with all of your bookshelf and say, this is me. Yet for whatever reason, it often isn't the safest place. Because I think we start to think there's this, there, there's this perfect person that we have to emulate, that we have to assimilate, and so we start pretending. The only perfect person is Jesus. And, and if he's our measuring stick, we know that he gave his very life because we're valuable, and so it brings us all back to ground zero. It brings us all back to a place of humility. If you need grace, if you recognize your shortcomings, but you want to follow Jesus, you're in the right place. We've been talking about comparison trap and how it affects us personally, um, but I'm pulling us back a little bit to see it a little more, more broadly and say that the comparison trap not only affects us personally, but it affects the message and the essence of the church. If we as Christians feel like we are, are doing this comparison trap and trying to be the Joneses, trying to be good enough, you know, we have a certain standard, it has a standard of holiness being like Christ, and whenever we fall short, we're going to pretend and put on a mask and pretend to be somebody that we're not. We're actually being like Ananias and Sapphira. And God hates pretending. I mean, he has a call on our lives. He has a call for how he wants us to live, absolutely, but it's founded on grace. I want to invite you to stand for a minute here before we sing the last song. And I just want to ask you a couple of reflection questions here, uh, even before we sing together. Have you been keeping, trying to keep up with the Joneses in some way? I just want you to close your eyes for a second. We're going to just invite the Holy Spirit to, to speak to us this morning. Father, would you just speak into our hearts? truth about your grace would you help us to be honest as a community with ourselves and so I just ask you have you been 
trying to keep up with the Joneses in some form? Has there been a standard of the type of person you think that you're supposed to be to the point that you feel like you've had to pretend to be somebody that you're not? How has this created chaos in your life? Where's there chaos in your life? Where's there disorder? Where's there evil practice? Is there a gap between the person that you're projecting and the person that you are? And here's a hard question. Is it possible that your race to keep up with the Joneses is actually negatively impacting the testimony of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the gospel? Now, their eyes closed. want to ask if if there's anyone in this room that feels like on any level that you are projecting or pretending to be somebody that you aren't this is a a moment of humility and vulnerability that is the foundation of the church because we're built on grace to raise a hand and say you know there's a gap between who I'm projecting and who I am just invite you to raise a hand with their eyes closed there's a gap between who I'm projecting and who I am to remind us of the story of Ananias and Sapphira not as a story of heaviness or judgment but actually the opposite that God doesn't want you to pretend and he doesn't want me to pretend he was so adamant about that that he made that statement in that story in Acts chapter 5 he dreamed of a church that was built on vulnerability on generosity on authenticity where we didn't do things because we had to, but we do things because we wanted to, because God's Spirit had melted our hearts. So I pray for you, and I pray for me in this moment that His Spirit would again melt our hearts, that we would base our value on the price that He paid for us, that that would result in actually being known as people of humility. Saved by grace, saved by grace, called to holiness on the journey in between. That we would become safe places for the people in our lives, our families, our friends, to be fully themselves, to encounter Jesus full of grace. Father, I pray for those in this room where there's a gap between who they're projecting and who they are, and I think. That's probably all of us in one, on one level. That you would give us a greater degree of courage and freedom to be fully ourselves with you. And that you would help SunWest to actually experience a greater degree of courage and freedom where we could be fully ourselves with each other. Founded on grace, but called to holiness. In the name of Jesus, I pray.
you know, after uh, the service, we always have prayer teams available. Um, if you feel that God is stirring anything in your heart, that you want to respond to anything, uh, that is a great opportunity just to come forward, and we'd love to connect with you, to pray with you. Uh, perhaps you're someone who has never taken that step of faith to actually trust the grace and love of God for you. That you've never actually stepped forward and say, God, I want to have a relationship with you. Maybe you felt like that relationship was based on holiness and merit. Uh, and you've realized this morning that uh, it's actually not. That there's a difference bet- between being called to holiness and being saved because of your holiness. Completely different. That our relationship with God is founded on what he has done for us. And the only thing that is needed from us is a posture of, of repentance a posture of receiving the gift that God has to offer you. If you're in that place this morning and want to take that faith step, we would encourage you to come forward. Maybe you're, as you put a hand up and you said, you know, there's a gap between who I'm pretending to be and who I am. You know, can you pray for me? That might be something that you want someone uh, to pray with for you or to follow up on. Or maybe there's something else that God's been stirring in your heart. Uh, we, we create these ministry opportunities at the end of service just to give you the space and the time uh, for you to respond to what the Lord is doing in your hearts. So let me pray for you one more time. Uh, and uh, we invite you back next week for uh, week, t- uh, week four of Comparison Trap, uh, where my friend Brad will be here speaking. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, and just a reminder that starting point, uh, week one is happening during second service if you want to join us for that. So again, Father, we just thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you that we get to be called your sons and daughters, that we are adopted children of God. Lord, we thank you for the good news um, that our value and our worth isn't uh, set on how good we are, on how good our bookshelf looks. And Lord, sometimes we know that in our heads, but we find ourselves living in such a way that we're trying to earn acceptance and earn love by how we look, by what we're projecting. Lord, we thank you that you can't stand that because that is good news for us. So Lord, I pray that you would just rise up within us a spirit of humility, a spirit of repentance. Repentance meaning, you know, we've missed the mark and it's actually the the best news in the world because now we get to receive the gospel of grace. And so Lord, we pray that we would be in a posture of receiving whatever you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great week. See you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.